Okay. Um, Mark 9, are you ready? We're going to keep going through Mark. Uh, the question for this passage, I was, I was meeting with some folks and saying, good night, I just, I'm not getting this passage this week. And, uh, and one of my uh, dear friends said, well, how often does this happen to you? <laughs> and I said, I'd start looking back on it. I'm like, I think it happens almost once every two months. There will be a passage that kind of stumps me for a long, long time. Well, here it is. Here's one for the past two months. Here it is. Uh, so I thought, if that's the way this thing is going, that's got to be part of the point of the text. So what are some of the hardest things to explain? For you, for me, what are some of the hardest things that we have to explain? I mean, there's the classic, right? Daddy, why is the sky blue? Classic. Uh, usually I say to the child that has asked that, I'd say honey or tiger, depending on who's talking to me, ask me when you can count to 10, right? And if they start counting, I said, okay, go ask your mom. <laughs> uh, there's the cultural or contextual hard things to explain, right? You see stuff on TV. There's all kinds of stuff on Discovery Channel, all different areas. And I've had questions like, you know, dad, do ghosts really exist? And in my personal all-time favorite is this one. Dad, what would you do in a zombie apocalypse? Right? And of course, there's always the Christian classic. How do you explain the Trinity? One God, three persons? How do you do that? Uh, Anne Rand, who's a famous Russian-American novelist, she said through one of her intriguing characters in her best-selling novel, The Fountainhead, the hardest thing to explain is the glaringly evident, which everybody has decided not to see. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian, possibly the world's greatest theologian, he said, how do you explain the taste of honey to someone who's never tasted it? Some things are just beyond explanation. And now it doesn't mean that there have to be irrational. It doesn't mean that you have to leave or check out your brain at the door, that it's somehow contrary to reason, these things that are beyond explanation, like that new show on Discovery Channel called Looking for Bigfoot. Have y'all seen that? Unbelievable. I love when we're watching Gator Boys and the previews for this thing comes on. It's in night and it looks like someone's filming with night vision goggles or some guy who looks like Bigfoot Jr. And he has this, this super sonar like satellite sound system that looks like the satellite that he's holding like this. It's got the little pointer and he's going, he's got the headphones on. He's got his little sidekick with him and he goes, did you hear that? Did you hear the whoop? Because everyone knows that a whoop is a Bigfoot, right? Did you hear the whoop? And his buddy, he just, now his eyes are as wide as saucers. His head's on a swivel, man. He's just, you know, with his buddy. And then you hear this loud crashing noise off to the left somewhere. They jump, the cameraman jumps, and we all jump at home. And you just can't help yourself. By the end of this preview, you really start believing there's a Bigfoot, right? Some things are beyond explanation. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to be irrational. They could be super rational. You know what I mean by that? Something more is needed than reason to get it. Something more is required uh, than the rational cognitive processes to know it. So I want to welcome you to a supernatural, super rational passage in Mark where more uh, is required than reason 
to get its meaning, where you can't will the meaning to be. You can't think the meaning to be. You can't feel the meaning to be. You can't desire or decide the meaning to be. You can't spiritually technique the meaning in this passage. You can't and I can't do anything to enter into the reality of the passage. How do you like beginning like that? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. The word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. Well, Lord, we thank you that um, we come to you uh, desperate and needy. And only you can shine on the page and only you can open the eyes that something more is required. Something more is needed for us to get you. Something more is needed for us to enter into the uh, meaning and reality of this passage. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what happens in this passage is beyond explanation. We're going to need something more to get it. Uh, There's no precedent for this passage anywhere. Anywhere. I mean, you can go through the cumulative knowledge and history and education and science and literature and life experiences of all human history, and you will not find one precedent for this passage anywhere. Not in extra-biblical writings, uh, the Apocrypha, the Pseudepigrapha, rabbinic literature, the Qumran, uh, the Nag Hammadi, Second Temple stuff, not even Hellenistic literature. There's no precedent for this passage anywhere, not even in the Bible There's no analogy for what's happening here that could have prepared the disciples or you and me in the Bible for what's happening here. There's nothing in all the Old Testament to prepare us for what's happening in this passage. Uh, There is nothing in all the ancient writings in the history of the world uh, to prepare you and me for this passage. This is a singular event that is beyond explanation. Something more is required, okay? So how should we approach this passage if this passage is like that? How do you approach a passage like that? Uh, How should we seek to understand it? How should we seek to enter into it? How should it become 
uh, deeply meaningful to us. Well, I want you to look at verses 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Here's the first thing we can say. This is how not to approach the meaning of this passage. (laughs) This is how you don't enter into it. This is how you will never get the meaning of this passage. What's happening here will keep you from approaching and entering into the reality of this passage. The most popular interpretation here is Peter's being a good boy scout, right? I mean, he's basically saying, pitch the tents and set up the camp, boys, right? Um, Peter is seen as, um, well, Peter. He's impulsive and foolish. And then when you add fear, it's like a steroid on his foolishness. And so he just says the first thing that comes out of his mouth. It's good for us to be here, right? I'm going to set up camp. You do what you're doing, but we're going to be over here setting up camp. That's the usual, common, most popular interpretation of this passage. But Markian scholar James Edward points out that Peter is not being dumb here. He's being regularly religious, normally religious. Uh, In other words, every good Israelite knew that a better tabernacle was coming, just like in the Exodus with Moses, but better. Just like in the temple area era with um, Elijah, but better. Every good Israelite knew that the tabernacle would again come, that God would tabernacle again with his people, that God would embrace his people, befriend his people, draw near to his people, that God would um, personally uh, dwell and make home and love and accept his people. So Peter is simply making the tabernacle. Three of them. Peter is simply trying to make it happen. Peter is trying to establish, build, secure, effort, the embrace. Uh, What Peter desires is deep within all of us, though, isn't it? Uh, C.S. Lewis, his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, he puts it this way. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. We have an inconsolable secret to be embraced. to find friendship of a cosmic proportion, to have the most meaningful being in the universe welcome us and embrace us. But what we do is we try to find this inconsolable secret. We try to find it and we try to seek this embrace in our families, in the arms of our lovers, in sexual intimacy. Uh, in art, in music, in achievement, right? Just like Peter, we try to establish, we try to build, we try to secure, we try to effort the embrace. We're all about making tabernacles and hoping that God will show up or something that can be God-like show up and embrace us, right? Right? So this will never work, though, we're going to see. This 
effort cannot happen. So how should we approach this passage? How should we approach the embrace? Look at verses 7 through 8. God responds immediately. Did you see that? To Peter's effort to effect the embrace. So Peter right away wants to build a tabernacle. Peter right away says what we think is foolish, but it's reasonably religious. He's like, I'll make the tabernacle. I'll secure the embrace. And God says immediately in a cloud overshadow. Here's God's response. A cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And God says, Peter, Jesus is going to replace your tents. Jesus replaces the tent making. In other words, Jesus establishes, Jesus builds, Jesus secures the embrace. Uh, Jesus is the embrace. Jesus will fill, he'll meet, he'll overflow that inconsolable secret with God's consolable love and acceptance in a deep, abiding, personal way to us. In other words, Jesus will fill us with God's friendship and he'll fill us with God's presence and he'll fill us with God's nearness. He'll fill us with God's embrace, right? So how does Jesus do this, though? I mean, how does Jesus replace Peter's tents to affect the embrace of God? I mean, that's how the question, that's how the passage is going. In fact, the, the passage answers it in verses 9 through 13. Do you see this? This is what's going on there. It's kind of weird because they're going down and you get this. He's telling them to not tell anybody what they've seen, right? He's been doing that a lot. They call this the messianic secret. And there's journals and articles and everybody writing about that. Uh, why is he doing that? And Jesus, basically, Mark says he's, he tells them not to tell till the resurrection happens. But here's the gist of what Jesus is saying to them in this passage. Remember, how does Jesus replace Peter's tabernacle, Peter's tents? How does he replace our effort to bring the embrace about? Here's what Jesus says, basically. I must die, and I must rise again. To bring God's embrace to you. Jesus says, look, you cannot effort the embrace. In fact, the effort, your self-effort is all about you. Your self-effort to affect the embrace of God is not about me, Jesus is saying. It's about you. It's not about others. It's not about love. It's not about art. It's not about music. It's not about sexual intimacy. It's really about you. It's self-exaltation. It's self-glorification. It's all about self. And it deserves the inconsolable alienation of God. And that's why I'm going to the cross. I'm going to take the penalty for your self-effort. And I'm going to suffer inconsolable alienation from God so that you will give and grant and be filled with the consolable love and acceptance of God so that I can affect the embrace of God for you.
but the cross, but the grace of God, no self-effort doesn't come easy for anyone, does it? It doesn't come easy for you. It doesn't come easy for me. And it certainly doesn't come easy for the folks in the text. Because look what happens in verse 10 through 11. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, it seems innocent right here, but the literal meaning is that they started talking behind Jesus' back in a critical way. So we're right back to when Peter said, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, now's the time. The switch of the book has happened. My identity has been established. Now I need to tell them what my mission is to really get my identity. And he talks about there is no Christ without the cross. And then what do they do? Peter openly says, no, Jesus, don't say that. Rebukes Jesus publicly. This is a, this is a more subtle rebuke. It's still the same heart. It's still the same attitude. It seems like an instant question when he asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Because remember, what are the last words in the Bible that they had? The last words were in Malachi, and it said that the great prophet Elijah would come and restore all things. Well, they just saw Elijah with Moses. And so it could just be an innocent question to say, so why this need to talk of the cross? This is how it happens, right? But actually, it's just another way to get the embrace without the cross. James Edwards says this is a more subtle rebuke on Jesus' notion of the cross. He says it this way. If Elijah restores all things at the day of the Lord, what need is there for the Son of Man to go to the cross? That's what the disciples are asking. So how should we approach this passage? How do we approach the embrace of God? How? Uh, here's how, by taking the sinner's place at the cross, by being um, lost and being broken and by being helpless, by recognizing that we need a rescue. We don't just need a little assistance. We need a full-blown rescue. We need to see that we're not just sinners, but we're Sinners imprisoned by sin. We need to be rescued. So self-effort cannot, the solution cannot be in ourselves. We cannot affect any kind of embrace. We cannot bring God and man together. We cannot generate God's love and acceptance. We cannot make that happen. It's got to come outside of us. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It has to come from him, right? A self-effort keeps us from getting Jesus. As Christians when we move into self-effort to affect the embrace of God, it actually keeps us from understanding Jesus. It blinds us to truly knowing God. It stifles and paralyzes our growth in our relationship with God. Like Peter and like James and John, we do not like to take the sinner's place at the cross. We think we can effort the embrace. We need to stop trying to be what we're not, and we need to admit what we really are. We need the cross. Uh, we need Jesus to affect the embrace, right? All right, there are many things happening in this passage that are off the charts, right? So many things beyond explanation. The first starts with Jesus' transfiguration, right? I mean, it's just simple Markian language. He just basically says, and Jesus transfigured before them. And we're like, what? What does that mean? 
Again, we're off and running. What are you talking about? That word transfiguration occurs four times in the Greek. And the whole Bible only occurs four times. Every time it occurs, it's this radical cosmic transformation that takes place. Uh, what's happening here is not a transformation of Jesus's nature. What's happening here is a transformation of Jesus's outer visible appearance to now match his nature. In other words, what's happening here is the veil over Jesus's deity is pulled away and you actually see it. So much so that it even radiates through his clothes. That's where you get this whiter than white. No one can bleach his clothing. What we have here, in other words, is the veil's been pulled off Jesus' deity. The glory of God is shining forth. The brilliance, the beauty, the breathtaking bounty of God shines right before their very eyes. I mean, Moses and Elijah, they pointed to the glory. Jesus is the glory. Right before their eyes. This is stunning. This is beyond explanation. I mean, how do you... How do you get it? Then the second thing that happens is Elijah and Moses show up. You have the two greatest representations of the word of God that's been commuted so far in the divine drama. Moses representing the first five books of the law. Then you got Elijah representing the prophets. All of them witnessing. All of them pointing. Right? They show up. But did you ever figure out or question when we were reading this? How did the disciples know it's Moses and Elijah? They didn't have picture storybook Bibles back then. They couldn't say, oh, that's Elijah. I mean, how does that happen? Again, some things are just beyond explanation in this text. But I feel like I got to at least try to give you one, right? Because I'm like, I don't want you to think it's irrational. It's super rational. So one explanation goes like this. I think this is the best one. Quote, when the realm of God momentarily breaks into the life of the disciples on the mountain summit, all things are known for what they are. It's the gift of ultimate reality. In other words, anytime God shows up, reality is known for what it really is. You see ultimate reality or the author, the one who has all authority. You see yourself, you see others, you see your world, you see your circumstances. You start interpreting and seeing the world aright. Unbelievable stuff in this passage. The third and final is what? You got the cloud and you got the voice. I mean, off the charts. That word overshadowed, that's the same word that was used of Mary when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and she conceived Jesus. So it's a deeply personal, deeply close contact embrace of God with the disciples. There are so many things that are happening in this passage that are off the charts beyond explanation, but nothing more than this. Jesus loves Sinners. Who was Jesus transfigured before? Verse 2. Before them. Who are them? Who are they? The cross rejecting, the Savior rebuking disciples. Who did Moses and Elijah appear to? Look at verse 4. To them. The cross rejecting the Savior rebuking disciples. Uh, who did the cloud overshadow? Who did the voice speak to? Verse 7, them, the cross rejecting, the Savior rebuking disciples. And then here's the one that's the most incredible of all. Who did Jesus stay back for? 
He could have escaped up to heaven. He could have abandoned them and gone with Moses and Elijah and said, I'm done. He could have left. Verse 8, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Jesus stands alone with you all the way to the cross. The only one standing is Jesus. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. The tents are gone. All effort is gone. Only Jesus is standing. But he's standing with you. This is off the charts. This is beyond explanation. Uh, This is the grace of God. This is the love of Jesus for you. So what is the meaning? What's the full meaning of this passage? The full meaning is that Jesus loves sinners over and over and over again. And so the call is what? Embrace his embrace of you.